Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Dean Kuntz. Dean is the author of 80 New York Times bestsellers, 14 of which were number one. His books have sold over 500 million copies worldwide, a figure that increases by more than 17 million copies per year. His work is published in 38 languages, and the Times of London has called him a literary juggler. He was born and raised in Pennsylvania and lives in California with his wife, Jerda, their golden retriever, Elsa, and the enduring spirits of their goldens, Trixie and Anna. Dean's new collection, Nameless Season 2, released on Amazon Original Stories on June 10th, 2021. It's available to read and listen, free to Prime members, as well as Kindle Unlimited subscribers. Readers can download each story individually to their Kindle or Kindle app, or get the whole collection with just one click. Stories are also available for non-members for $1.99, with the option to add digital audio for free. Dean, we're very excited to have you on the show, number one, and we're secondly so excited to hear about Nameless Season 2. How's it going? Going well. Thank you for having me there. And let me just begin by saying, if you hear a panting noise, it's my golden retriever who insists on being right at my side. It isn't me having any kind of attack. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you letting us know that. We are a dog-friendly podcast, so the retriever is welcome. That being said, we're excited to have you on the show. My first question is always, where are you in the world? I mentioned in your bio that you are in California. Did you want to mention specifically where you are? Have you been there all through the pandemic? And how's everything going? Well, we lived for probably 30 years in Newport Beach. And then last year, in the midst of the pandemic, we moved next door to Irvine. So we're here in Southern California. It's a little inland, or it's a little warmer in the summer, a little cooler in the winter. And right now, we're just fine. It was a challenging move because we moved tens of thousands of books. So anytime you make a move, it's dramatic. But moving that many books at my age was quite a challenge. And thankfully, it's done. As I mentioned, pandemic happened last year. Writers by nature are a isolated bunch. So sometimes writers were not affected. For those writers who did encounter some challenges, writer's block, lack of inspiration, feeling down during those times. Do you have any advice for those writers, both in regards to that and also just in general, writer's block and just getting through tough times and getting to finish the work? Well, I have never suffered from genuine writer's block. I have some days where it goes better than others. I have said, I think, all writer's block comes from the same cause, which is self-doubt. And I have more self-doubt than any writer I've ever known. But you have to get past that. You have to find a way the technique that works for you to get past that self-doubt. For me, it's always been revise that page over and over again until you're confident that you can't make it any better. And then some confidence returns until you get to the next page. And that's how I get through any doubt. I just revise and revise and polish more. I love the language. So polishing it can be kind of fun, trying to see how much you can smooth it out, how more elegantly you can 
make the prose work. And that gets me through blocks. So I'm not one to ask. That might work for some people and not for others. But it is, I think it is important to recognize that's what causes blocks. It isn't that your mind suddenly has no ideas or your subconscious is betraying you by wanting to be somewhere else. In the end, it's that doubt and the thing that keeps you from committing to it out of fear you're going to screw it up. And it's just recognizing that, I think, gets you past it. So that is the best advice I can give anybody about writer's block. Love that. Before we talk process, I would love to hear about your career to this point. As I mentioned in your bio, you are the author of 80 New York Times bestsellers, 14 of which were number one. That's a lot of work, incredibly impressive career. Did you always want to be a writer? And could you walk us through how that all came to be? Well, I was, I was raised in a house with not a book in. Books were considered a waste of time. It was also not a happy home. My father was a violent alcoholic, held 44 jobs in 34 years, and partly because he would punch out the boss, which is not a great career move. And as a consequence, when I was eight years old, I started writing little stories, drawing a cover, stapling the corners, trying to peddle them as little booklets for a nickel. I grew up not understanding where that love of books comes from. By the time I was 12, I read every book the library allowed children to check out young adults. I read all the Robert Heinlein, everything else that was for kids my age. And the librarian said, oh, well, in those days, they didn't let kids take out any adult section books. That doesn't mean pornography. It just means Herman Woke or anything that was published for adults until they were 16. But the librarian said, in your case, since there's nothing more in your group to read, I'll let you start taking these out. And when I was 30-something, I recognized that this love of reading must have come from a period in my childhood when I was three to four years old. And I stayed with a friend of my mother's because my mother had had spinal surgery. And she was out of commission for six months. And I couldn't be left with my father. So I was left with this woman whose house was the opposite of ours. Everything was meticulous. It was a very stable household. Anna Macassar's on the chairs, grandfather clock ticking in the hallway. And every night she put me to bed, reading me a story while I had an ice cream soda. And I think I was 30-something till it dawned on me. That was when I started to associate storytelling with peace and happiness. And that got me into writing and reading. Then I was in high school, I had an English teacher who was a mentor to me, Winona Garbrick. For four years, she was my English teacher, ninth through 12th grade. And when I went to college to major in history, she called me out about it and said, don't, for God's sake, do that. Major in English, you have writing ability. And that was the first time somebody had shown that kind of interest in me. It was so impressive that I said, hmm. And I changed my major. And that sort of is where it all grew out of. That friend of my mother's, that teacher in high school. And after that, I've been writing ever since. Love that. Dean, I would love to talk process with you, specifically using Aimless Season 2 as the example. Would you mind if I just read a brief synopsis of the Nameless Season 2 collection? Sure. Go ahead. Behind a wall of amnesia, he can't remember anything. Maybe he can't bear to. Nameless knows only the mission. Directed by the mysterious Ace of Diamonds, he travels the country, turning predators into prey. But the pain in his past can't hold him back when dark visions of the future lead him toward his greatest test yet. 
Nameless is closing in on a revelatory endgame in this collection of short thrillers from number one New York Times bestseller author Dean Kuntz. Dean, that is an amazing project. There are six short books in here. I'm very curious to know, first, we always talk about the inception of ideas and the inception of how projects begin. Can you walk us through, I know there was a previous season of this, maybe where both of these seasons started, and then how you came about coming up with the idea, both for season one and for season two? Well, I've been focusing largely on novels because there was no market for shorter fiction. These stories are novelettes to novellas. They range between 10 and 20,000 words. And then several years ago, New York publishers would ask you to write a novelette or novella to support the new novel. It would sometimes have some of the same characters in it or the same setting or whatever. And I discovered that I liked that form quite a lot. If you bring the same kind of color that you bring to a novel, and if you try to make the characters have the same depth as the character in a novel, if the thematic structure underlying the plot is about something more than just the story as it needs to be in a novel, then suddenly you've got this shorter form that is just as intriguing as a novel, and in some ways, I think can be more memorable because it's so punchy. And I did a few of those for Random House, who was my publisher at that time, and they sold very well. They would sell them for $1.99, would sell a few hundred thousand that would prepare people to want to get the novel. Hopefully, that was the idea. And first, Amazon Original Stories came to me and said, would you do one of these for us? And we made a deal, and I wrote something called Ricochet Joe, which they actually illustrated and did a very nice job on. And it was so much fun to work with them there. But when they next came to me and said, what about doing six stories with the same character, each a standalone, but a kind of overriding arc to them as well? And I started to think about it, and I was really charmed by that idea. Then my agent said to me as they were making the deal, which I find kind of funny, they said, Amazon will pay you royalties for the people who buy these, but they want to give them away to Amazon Prime members as just a sort of bonus for being a member. And those I don't want to pay you a royalty on. And I said, well, how exactly does that work? Well, it worked well. They just pay you up front and you do the stories. And I came up with the idea of nameless. As somebody who has this, he's a very active, he's almost mission impossible kind of guy because he's working for some organization. He has no idea who they are. They have incredible funding. He has no memory of his past beyond the two years he's been doing this. So he doesn't know who he was before, where he came from, or why he's doing this. But he suspects, he knows that his amnesia was engineered. And he suspects that he wanted to be an amnesiac, that there is something in his past so grievous that he can't live with it. That was the original idea that came to me. How ideas come to you, sometimes you know and sometimes you don't. In this one, is one of those where I don't have much idea. I first came to the thought of this idea. I hadn't seen engineered amnesia before, where somebody has it and wants it, and then is out there doing these really intriguing and interesting missions to undo people who the system gives a pass to and are just as bad as anybody who goes to prison, but for some reason because of the class they exist to or the ideology they believe in or whatever, they never get accountable for what they do. And I thought, that's intriguing. And I think it plays to a lot of 
feelings people have about our own time. And as a consequence, that's where the first season came from. I think they were shooting for like a million downloads in a year and we passed two million in a year. And we're still going pretty strong on that season. But we don't want this to go on forever. So the idea was, let's do a second season, but let's bring it to a conclusion there. I've written other series, but I'm always aware series can go on way too long if they're popular and they lose creativity. They stop singing and they start groaning, I think. And I didn't want Nameless to start being a groan to readers. I wanted it to be as exciting in second season as first. And I knew we could pull two of them off, but maybe not more than two. So that's sort of where it came from. And they've been great fun because with the novel, you've got a six, seven month arc or horizon once you start at a 60 and 70 hour weeks, which is how I work. And sometimes that can be daunting. But with each of these stories, it's three weeks, four weeks, whatever. The horizon is nearer. And that's an element of charm to this format as well. I would love to get into character. In this case, there's a character who doesn't have memory. Oftentimes when writers are writing a character, they are writing the character's background so that they can write from that character's perspective. But when writing for a character who doesn't have their memory, would it behoove a writer to almost not know as much? Obviously, as the story creator, you need to know the actual truth. How did you walk that line, that balance between those? Well, I didn't want him to be a cipher. The danger you have in a character who knows nothing of his past is that he's not really a character. He's a cartoon. I didn't want that to happen. I wanted him to have enough self-awareness, enough self-knowledge to know that whatever this is that is in his past is something that he finds so devastating that he can't live with it. And as a consequence, that develops all kinds of interesting aspects to his personality. I also wanted there to be things in his past that form who he is that make him interesting, that he doesn't know why he does this. And he has sometimes different theories. Like one fun little thing in these is he's on the road. Wherever he goes, he's put up in a very nice place to live. If he walks out in the morning from his hotel, there's a vehicle waiting for him that has been left for him. When he checks into the hotel, his bags are in his room with everything he's going to need. And so that's all really intriguing. But he's always eating out. And he has this habit of ordering dinner with wine that might cost $50 and leaving a $300 tip. He's not quite sure why he does that, but he thinks there's somebody in his past that pushed him to do this. And there's a little memory that he has of somebody saying to him why this is a good idea to do and why it's important. It's a kind of touching little moment. I wanted to give him all this stuff in his past that is mysterious to him, but helps you build him as a character and understand him as a person. I didn't want him to be this cipher that an amnesiac can be. And I think that worked because people seem to be really taken with this character. And of course, you're correct. I had to know who he was, not so much where he was going. I didn't know how this two seasons would end, but I had to know where he had come from. And it was real fun to get readers' responses to the end of the first season when the reveal comes about who he is, where he comes from. And nobody has corresponded with me was expecting it. So that's sort of how that character had to be built. You want him to be as interesting in the end. He should be something not that allows you to keep him a blank, but that makes you strain to find other ways to make him real and deep. 
We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writerexperience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. As far as writing a full-length novel versus writing a series of novelettes or novellas, what is the difference as far as plotting out the arc of a story across a novel versus several books that are each standalone but that tell a greater story? Well, first of all, I don't outline. When I'm doing a novel or these stories, I never outline. I used to in my youth, and I stopped with, strangely enough, the first book that made the bestseller list in hardcover, a book called Strangers. And it was a quarter of a million words or longer with a lot of characters. And I just took the plunge and didn't outline. And I loved it. I loved letting the characters have free will. I loved just following the story and seeing where it would lead. And it always has led somewhere more interesting than where it would have led if I'd outlined it. Now, there's a lot of writers that must outline it. That's the only way they want to work or can work. And there's nothing wrong with that. For me, that just doesn't work anymore. When it's a novel, there's a a little more (laughs) spookiness to it because you always have in the back of your mind, what if I get 80,000 words into this and I can't figure out how to explain any of it? Actually, that so far hasn't happened. In the novelette novella form, it's different because in each of the stories, he's got an antagonist he's got to take down. And the way I've structured the stories, in a pinch, when he's got to defend himself against somebody who's going to take his life, he can take the life of that person. But what he tries to engineer is something where they pretty much do themselves in or If they're involved with other people who are equally as awful as they are, he tries to set it up so that those other people take them out or they take each other out. So all I have to do in these is say, okay, what kind of antagonist do I want in this story? And what is he up to? And the plot kind of evolves itself pretty quickly in this length. And I don't worry, uh oh, what am I going to do when I get to the end? Because the story. It really comes out of entirely who that antagonist is and what has he done that's so horrific. We need to see him either in prison for the rest of his life or no longer on this planet. And 
that's probably another thing that makes them a little safer form to write because you're not going to get to 80,000 words and say, whoops, uh, I'm not sure how to end this. So I don't outline either one, but the shorter form is more reliant on who the antagonist is and how we're going to defeat him in a relatively short order. Speaking specifically to novelettes and novellas, for those writers who are starting a new work or in between works looking to start a new book, are there pros and cons for especially new writers working on a novelette or novella these days as opposed to a novel? Is it more challenging to try to get a novelette or novella out there? Well, I think probably yes, because there are fewer outlets. Now, one of the reasons very few of these were written for a long, long time was that if you go back to the 30s, 40s, 50s, even somewhat into the 60s, there were many, many magazines that published fiction at this link. Saturday Evening Post, Collier's, Argosy, Red Book, it went on and on. Now there are very, very few that publish. The New Yorker still publishes a little bit of in that, but they do more reporting than they used to do. And there's just fewer outlets. Now, one of the ones that exist now is Amazon Original Stories, which has been very successful at selling this format. I actually think in some ways, it's more a format for our time, where people's time, their lives are busier, that their leisure reading time is shorter. And this format, I think, is growing in popularity. But it is harder to place a novelette or a novella, not as hard as it was two or three or four years ago, but much harder than it used to be back in earlier decades. A perfect example is John D. MacDonald, who went on to be a very big bestseller in novel length but who wrote many, many, oh, probably a couple of hundred novelettes and novellas that were published everywhere from the Saturday Evening Post and onward in a time when he would be paid what in those days was phenomenal money for that length. And I think it could come back. I think you could see magazines coming back or online outlets beyond Amazon Original Stories. I don't control that. I'm just happy to have Amazon Original Stories to do these with. The format of these novelettes, novellas, and the collection itself is right now two seasons, each with several novelettes or novellas in there, which is very reminiscent of the way TV works these days. A lot of streaming platforms will have a season, a couple seasons, with each season having several episodes therein. The obvious question, I think, would be, it would be very easy almost to convert this into TV. Has there been any talk about that? Is that something you'd be interested in being involved in? What are your thoughts between the way this would look in its current form and the way it might look as a TV version? Well, I agree with you. It's an obvious, but sometimes what's obvious is not where the common wisdom in the film industry settles. Strangely enough, I had recent novels being picked up for development as TV series. So far, Aimless has not been. And it does sort of surprise me, although I think my agent is at work on that as we speak. But yeah, it's obvious to me. It's maybe not as obvious to the people in the streaming business. Also, streaming has gone oftentimes for a different kind of story. I think it's interesting. I saw a study that says only something like 54% of the public who subscribes to these streaming services are happy with the shows they get. That's surprisingly low numbers. And I think that's a function of a lot of production has happened 
in order to satisfy the appetite. They're luring people into streaming services with saying, we're going to give you so much intellectual property here. It's not the word they use, that's the business term, but we're going to give you so many cool things to watch. But the volume they're producing at the moment, I think, outstrips the amount of talent there is to make it properly. And I think they're undergoing some soul searching about this. And there's been too quick decision about the kind of things they need to make. And I think that'll all evolve into something else. Maybe when it does, then nameless will appear more juicy to them. Let's see. You mentioned you don't outline, but some authors, when they write that first draft, may not be perfect. Would you consider that in a way something between maybe an outline and the finished product when you set out to work on it? Or when you sit down to write it, are you one of the type of writers who try to make it as perfect as possible as you do that first pass? Yeah, that's exactly what I do. I mentioned self-doubt, and that's the only way I get through it. I have to stay with page one until I can't make it any better. Then I get to page two, the doubt comes back. So I stay with that, but I can't make it any better. This might mean 10 times through it at a pretty intense level, may mean 20 or 30 times through it. Then when I get to the end of a chapter, I print it out and I go through it a couple more times. When I get to the end of the book, there's usually no reason to go back. The whole thing, I say, it's so many drafts, inch by inch, that there's nothing I can do for that further to improve it unless I get some editorial feedback that I find helpful. Partly that, I think, is for me also the right way to go because I can tell you when I used to do a first draft many, many years ago, I would do it down and dirty sometimes, and a lot of writers do it. They just want to get through the story. Then you have to go back and look at all the problems and start making fixes and start adjusting, start getting rid of those things where the verisimilitude doesn't really strike you as correct. And I'm afraid, for me, I would start taking shortcuts on that. I would feel, oh, I've got it done. I don't want to have to sit here doing now three more drafts at that level. So just by going slowly, I avoid a lot of those problems that people oftentimes have to go back and fix. For instance, I may know 10, 20, 80 pages ahead that there's going to be a moment where something has to happen and I can't foresee how on earth that's going to be achieved. But as I slowly get through the work, the subconscious is working on it. And it's always the case that when you get there, you not only figured it out, you oftentimes have two or three or four options of how to proceed. In a quick draft, you don't have that. Then you have to hope that those better options occur to you as you go through and do draft two. I just don't want to take that chance. And so for many reasons, it works for me just to go through it. I've said sometimes I form a novel like a coral reef is built on all these little dead calcarian skeletons, which are my little dead sentences that got wiped out or reformed endlessly through the course of the book. I'm big about the language needing to flow as smoothly as it possibly can and as fun as it can. I want it to be full of metaphor and simile and figures of expression, figures of speech that give the reader fun on that level as well as just a swift read. And that too takes time that I don't find I would do if I went through a quick draft and then went back again. Dean, what would you say is the most fulfilling part of writing a novella or a novelette as opposed to writing a novel? Would you say it's the ability to write it a bit faster and taste the fruits of your labors quicker? Would you say 
it's just as pure a creative process? Each is satisfying in its own way. The biggest difference in the shorter form has to do with even if a novel's working and you're getting toward the end, you know it works, you've been comfortable with it, you've done all those drafts, and you're getting closer and closer to the end, and you know now how you're going to wrap it, and you've got maybe 10,000 words to go or whatever. Nevertheless, I always find it in my head, yeah, I wonder whether this is the one that destroys the career. And I think that's a kind of often some of the writers I know and like, I know feel often the same way. And operating on the last 10,000 or 20,000 words with that feeling can be pretty daunting. Whereas in a novelette, if it's working in the first five, 7,000 words, it's going to work. You don't get that same wondering if this large ship you're steering is going to crash into an iceberg at the end. And so the shorter ones are a happier experience in that sense. But both of them are satisfying in their own way. You don't do this, or I don't think most people do this, if they hate doing it. You do it because there's an element of play in it. Even though it's hard work, and even though you'd many days rather be out doing something else, it's nevertheless play at the same time. Love that. Dean, I would love to ask you a couple bonus questions. The first one being, if you could take any writer, living or dead, to any restaurant, sometimes we ask fast food restaurant, but oftentimes people don't choose that option. That being said, is there one writer you choose to take to any restaurant? Who would you choose and why? Well, there's, I'd have to book lunch for a year. I corresponded briefly with John D. McDonald right at the beginning of my career. My publisher, without my knowledge, sent him a proof of a book, and he came back with an effusive response to it. And also, not only that, but wrote the publisher about, for God's sake, don't put this on the cover. Don't do this kind of cover. Don't do that kind of cover. I thought that was so sweet because he knew what publishers will tend to do and how that image could destroy the enjoyment of the book. So it would be nice to have had the opportunity to sit down with him. I would have found Dickens or Flannery O'Connor or T.S. Eliot or Ray Bradbury or Theodore Sturgeon, great, but in many ways, I'm afraid to say, a more forgotten science fiction writer. I'd have loved to talk to all of those people, but I can't bring them back to life. And I don't choose a living writer because if I choose one friend and not another, I'm in trouble. So I'll stick with ones with disease. My last question is, if you could choose one piece of advice for learning from your entire career to pass along to those writers who are listening, what's the one thing that you would say? I would say the best advice you can get is not to scope the market, not to look at what's selling and try to write into the market for what it seems to want. That was a lot of pressure in the early days of my career that I had to ignore because every writer only has one thing to sell. That's his or her vision of the world, his or her voice, style, and approach. And you only want to write about what you're passionate about and write it the way you want to write it. Or otherwise, you're just imitating other people. And that's going to be a very short career. But there's always a lot of pressure to do that. If some genre is hot, they want you to write in that genre when you're starting out. If you're writing kind of close to it, kind of a suspense novel, and suddenly domestic suspense about a family or psychological suspense is more popular, you'll get pressure that way. Unless it's what you're passionate about, don't do it. Stay with what you know 
and love and what you think you want your career to be about. Dean's new collection, Nameless Season 2, released on Amazon Original Stories on June 10th, 2021. It's available to read and listen free to Prime members as well as Kindle Unlimited subscribers. Readers can download each story individually to their Kindle or Kindle app or get the whole collection with just one click. Stories are also available for non-members for $1.99 with the option to add digital audio for free. Thank you again, Dean, for your insights and your time. It's an absolute honor and a pleasure for us to speak to you and to hear your writing wisdom and gems. Well, thanks for having me there. Have a good day. Thanks. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.